Well, open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 1. We're continuing this uh, Christmas series called The Heart of Christmas, looking at God's heart and uh, how that ought to be reflected in our heart. One of my fondest memories of Christmas, one of my vivid pictures, uh, living in eastern Washington, I can remember seeing my grandfather come in with a basket of Christmas presents. They, they drove over, they lived over Marysville and we in eastern Washington, and here they come with this basket of Christmas presents, and I thought, yes! Uh, my mom's an only child, which made me the favorite grandson <laughs> take it or leave it kind of a thing. <laughs> My grandfather was uh, a generous man, as I remember him. Uh, he died uh, a number of years ago. My mom's dad. My dad tells a story one time of them going to eat. This was, I believe, before I was around, and uh, they all had a steak. And uh, uh, when the bill came, my dad picked it up like he's going to pay the bill. And my grandfather let him hang on to it for a while <laughs> and then paid the bill. <laughs> There's no way my dad could have paid the bill. I know what that's like because when we were uh, in our younger years especially, Sue's dad always picked up the bill, uh, always was very generous with our kids. And uh, I just came to understand uh, what generosity is and that it is a wonderful trait. And no one possesses more generosity than God the Father. And the Christmas story is a great example of that. We're just going to look at one piece of that today from Luke chapter 1 and part of the story of Mary and the events around her conception. Luke 1 28. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now drop down, please, to verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who has mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The word favor in verse 30, if you would look there, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
The word favor is the same word most often translated grace in the New Testament. And the word grace essentially means a gift. It's it's to give something. To be gracious is to be giving or to be generous. There is a major religion in the world that has taken this little verse and turned it upside down and somehow constructed the idea that Mary lived such a sinless life that she deserved to be and earned the right to be the, uh, the womb, to have the womb of Christ, to be the one who would give birth to Christ. They go on to reason that if, that if he was to be born sinless, then she must have been sinless herself. And this is exactly the opposite of what the Scripture would teach us. Certainly there was more than one virtuous virgin in Israel. She was a virgin. She was a virtuous person. But she was a human being, which means she was born with a sin nature, which means she committed acts of sin in her lifetime. I'm sure she, we would assume she was an Old Testament believer. She was righteous as the Old Testament uh, era people were righteous. I would assume that. But what we see here is that God graced her. God generously gave to her something that she didn't earn or deserve, and he blessed her with that. Look at verse 48. Mary says, He has regarded the lowly state. She looked at herself and she said, I'm nothing. I'm nothing, but God has reached down to give to me. Look at verse 49. He who is mighty, he has done great things for me. He did something for me. I did not do something for him. Verse 50. His mercy is on those who are great. Is that what it says? No, his mercy is on those who fear him. In other words, those who walk in worship and respect of God. Not people who are great, but people who are worshipers. God had mercy on her. Verse 52 says, he has exalted the lowly. She was a lowly person. And he reached down and he said, Mary, I'm going to bless you beyond what you can even understand right now. And we know that she didn't fully understand it because as you read the rest of the text, there are several times where, where we read this phrase of Mary, she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She's thinking, she's going, this is unbelievable. I don't exactly know what's going on, but it's incredible. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think about it. And obviously in time, she came to a full understanding of what had happened. But this interchange between Mary and God teaches us that God is generous beyond explanation beyond explanation there's another tremendous example of god's uh, generosity to the people in the old testament we read it in deuteronomy chapter 7 for you are a holy or a special people to the lord your god the lord your god has not chosen you to be a people for himself a special or he has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above the peoples on the face of the earth The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you 
And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God love Abraham and the people who came from Abraham? Why did he continue to love them? Why did he bring them out of slavery in Egypt? Why did he bring them into their own land? Why did he bless them? Why did he allow a savior to be born from them? Because the Lord loves you. That's the reason. Not because they were great, not because they were special, not because they followed his instruction better than anybody else. Because in fact, they didn't. God chose Abraham. God caused a nation to come from that man. And he cared for them even when they complain. And that's why Romans 9 says this, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it's not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now this is talking about us as unbelievers facing a holy and righteous God. Certainly, as Christians, we have some responsibilities, and as we live them out, God blesses us. But as unbelievers, we face God, and he says, I'm going to be merciful to you, not because you deserve it or have earned it, but because I am a great, loving, generous God. That's an example of grace. What would the explanation contain? Well, the first question we have to ask is, why is God so gracious to mankind? Turn to Ephesians 2, please. Certainly he's gracious because of his character, because it is in him to be gracious. But Ephesians 2 enlarges upon that in us and tells us why he has to deal with us according to grace. Ephesians 2 And you he has made alive who were dead or totally controlled in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature... Children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come we might show the exceeding riches of his grace. In his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. Why is God so gracious to mankind? He is so gracious because we are so helpless. We've had a number of children in our house the last few days. And I've been reminded again of uh, how little ones are. And you know, when you have a, a little child, why do you feed the little child? Harrison gets up. Harrison, would you like something to eat? Yes. Would you like some oatmeal? Yes. I will make you some oatmeal. Here's some oatmeal. Would you like some brown sugar and butter? Just brown sugar. Okay, very good. Would you like something to drink? No, I'm not thirsty. 
Why didn't I say, Harrison, the pans are over there, and the oatmeal's over there. Now, it's old-fashioned oatmeal. That's all we got right now. So you're going to need to get a stool so you can get up and reach into the microwave. Now, there's a special program on it for simmering, and you're going to have to cook this oatmeal for... Okay. He's a little kid. Why do I cook him breakfast? Because he can't do it himself. And the younger a baby is, the more of that goes on. They, they, they can't change their own diaper. They can't warm up their own bottle. We take care of them because they are helpless. That's what this passage is talking about. God reached down and graciously said, I'm going to make salvation in such a way that you can receive it because you are helpless. Why is God so gracious to mankind? Because we're helpless. Billy Graham wrote this this statement that I read this week. The immutable law of sowing and reaping has held sway. We, as a human race, are now the hapless possessors of moral depravity. And we seek in vain for a cure. What is he saying? He's saying... Here I am, I'm a sinner, and I'm trying to find the cure, and I can't do it. And so God reaches down. But he didn't look down and see who would believe, because nobody would believe. He didn't look down through time and see who would be good, because nobody would be good. He didn't choose those who loved him, because nobody loved him. God, because of the greatness of his character, created salvation in a way that we could receive, because we were so helpless. What did he do in that creation of salvation? Well, first of all, he made a plan for our salvation. And we read about it in many places, including First Peter. Knowing that you were not redeemed, you were not bought back out of sin with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but, you, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained previously. Before you were born, He was. this plan was set in place before the foundation of the world. But He was manifest or He came into visible being in these last times for you. God made a plan for our salvation because He saw how helpless we were. And then He paid... <laughs> for that plan himself and we read about that in Romans 3 being justified or made righteous freely freely by his gift by his generous gift through our good deeds no through the redemption the payment for sin that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth to satisfy his own wrath against sin that's what propitiation means God set forth to satisfy his own wrath against sin by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance or putting up with sin, God passed over the sins during that Old Testament era. He put them on hold to demonstrate now at the present time his righteousness that he might be righteous and the one who makes others righteous through faith in Christ. God made a plan and paid for the plan himself. 
And then he made that plan accessible to us sinners. And we just read it in Ephesians 2. For by grace, by a gift, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you're here today and you are working your way to heaven, if you have a plan in place whereby you're going to do good, and then you're going to show up as we picture it at the gate of heaven and uh, St. Peter or Jesus Christ or whoever you picture standing there is going to say, why should I let you into heaven? You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed when you come to what the scripture calls the judgment seat of Christ. Because the scripture says no sinner will even stand there. In other words, the ability to stand, when God uses that word, the ability to stand, it's like, can you step up into the face of a great person and stand there and hold your own? And what Scripture says is, no, you won't even be able to stand, but you'll hang your head in shame, and no man will look Jesus Christ in the eye and say, let me tell you what I have done for you. Because in that moment, every person will realize their own sinfulness, perhaps like the prophet Isaiah, who had a vision of the, of the holiness of God. And, and this was a man who was worshiping God. And what happened when he saw the holiness of God? He said, yeah, boy, this is great. No, he said, woe is me. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in a country of unclean lips. And, and he, he hung his head and he, he cowered back. And, and God, through an angel, touched him and said, Look, I'm going to make you right. But if you have spent your life doing good, Christmas time comes, boy, you're first in line to give to Toys for Tots and every other gift program there is. And you expect to stand before God and say, look what I have done. Look at the life I've lived. Look how I've treated people. You will not stand. You will be sorely disappointed because God says, not of works. Lest anyone should stand there and brag in the face of God. Secondly, you will regret not receiving God's gracious gift while you were here on earth because you could have been enjoying life in Christ. You know, salvation is, is a two-sided coin. Salvation starts now, and the transformation that God brings starts now, but it is also eternal. We need to be ready to die because that is the most critical thing that will happen in our lifetimes because from there we face eternity. But we also need to be able to live life. And God says, I want to change your life now and preserve it then. And that's why God made his plan of salvation accessible to us sinners. He looked down and said, these people are going to sin they're going to need a Savior. I'm going to send the second person of the Trinity who we know as Jesus Christ. He's going to take on a human body. He's going to grow up. He's going to suffer. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to shed his blood. I'm going to receive that blood as payment for sin. He's going to be buried. He's going to be raised again back to heaven. God made a plan, and he said, 
Here's what I want you human beings to do. I want you to believe this truth. I want you to acknowledge that you're a sinner. I want you to look in yourself and say, I know I'm not good enough to stand before God. Not by God's standard. By my humanly created standard, maybe, but not by God's standard. I know I'm not. And furthermore, I don't need to. Because Christ will take away my sins by his sacrifice. How should we respond to this grace? Well, first of all, and quite obviously, we should respond in faith. One of the best-known verses in the Scripture is this, For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave. He graced us. He generously gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, God has made it real plain and simple, and frankly, that's one of the reasons a lot of human beings don't like it. It's too easy. You've got to kind of suffer and pay our own way. He says, look, I've given, I want you to believe. Uh, at Christmas time, all of our kids will be here and their kids with them. And our house will be crazy and fun. And on Christmas morning, we will unwrap all this stuff. And when we get done, there will be this low mountain of paper. And boxes. And uh, we'll all be standing there, sitting around. And at some point, somebody will go get a garbage bag and we'll start shoving that paper in there. But when we do it, we're very careful. Because we don't want to pick up one of those cards that might have Grandma's special gift certificates. You know, the universal kind. And shove that in that bag and throw that away. And so we're very careful. Pick up that paper, pick up that box. Careful, careful. Where is it? And then we look under the tree and make sure we didn't forget any stuff that's under there. Happens once in a while. Have you received what God has given or is it lost in the clutter of your life? There was a woman that Jesus talked to about himself and about salvation and about the wonderful transformation that could come to her. And he said, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This woman is talking to the Son of God who's going to be her Savior from sin. And he says, lady, if you only knew who you were talking to. And I'm sure as the years went on, she thought back and thought, oh man, I should have spent that time better. She did come to faith in Christ. We, we, we rejoice in that. Do you know who we're talking about? Do you know the wonderful gift of salvation? Do you realize that the God of the universe is offering you a gift of immeasurable value? Are you going to receive it or walk away? Well, those of us who have received it have to respond to this grace as well. And the first way that we need to respond after we believe, after we put faith in Christ, we need to respond in worship. Listen to this story of appreciating Christ. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers. Now, if you don't know what leprosy is, it's a terrible disorder. starts as <clears throat> blotches. Uh, you, you would notice it as a skin disease, if you will. Eventually, if it's not treated and taken care of, it, 
It, it really disfigures people and uh, disables them. Now, there was not a cure for it then. And so here's ten men. And the Old Testament law specifically said if you had a, any kind of a visible skin disease, you had to stay away from people and, and essentially holler out to them so they wouldn't get near you. So that's the kind of life these men lived. Not only did they have the physical problem, they had the social problems, the economic problems that went with it. As he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. They stood away from him. They didn't walk up to him. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priest. That was the Old Testament requirement. When they were healed in the Old Testament, they would go and the priest would would sort of stamp them proved. Yes, I certify you uh, healed. Well, he tells them right up front, go show yourself to the priest. And so it was, as they went, they were cleaned, cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he, he's walking along and he goes, dude, I'm healed. He returned and he, with, and he came back to Christ. And with a loud voice, he glorified God. And he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And if you don't know, that was a, a, a racial group of people that didn't get along with the Jews too much. He was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten who were cleansed? Where are the nine? these guys, their lives were radically changed, physically, socially, spiritually. And when one guy realized that, boy, he came back and he fell down. That, and, you know, in that day, that's how they would worship. That's how you would show reverence to a king. You would get down on your face. I am low, you are high. It's that very physical demonstration of worship. He fell down and he said, oh, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Is that what you do? Do you realize how much God has done for you? Do you realize how generous he's been, how gracious he's been in giving you salvation? If you realize it, somehow there ought to be a heart like that leper who was cleansed where we just say, oh God, thank you for my salvation. Oh God, thank you for this blessing. Thank you for that blessing. Thank you for all the things that you've done through my salvation. You've changed my life. You've helped me to be a husband or a father or a wife, or, or, or you've helped me to be a, a good student, or you've helped me to reach some other people for Christ. Oh, thank you for what you've done. You're so great. Real worship has two elements, I think. One is acknowledging our unworthiness. I am not saved because I was a good man. I do not continue to be saved because I have such a strong grip on God. I am saved and I continue to be saved because God reached down and got a hold of me and he is not letting go. We need to acknowledge our unworthiness and then speak our appreciation. 
It needs to come out in little ways and large. We should love coming together to sing God's praise together. Where else can you do that? You ever sing God's praise right in the middle of the mall? <laughs> I mean, I, I think you ought to say thank the Lord when something good happens. I do that. Maybe that's why people look at me funny all the time. I don't know. And I'm not saying I do that enough. But is there a heart of worship? Can you imagine, probably some of you that are parents can't imagine this, giving a gift and having the recipient open it up and then look at you and go, is that all? That's all you got? Oh, man, doesn't that make you mad? Christian? Christian, I'm talking to Christians. What, do you, what did you deserve as an unbeliever? You deserve to go to hell. What has God given you? God has given you heaven. You deserve to live a life in frustration. God has given you a life of transformation. There should be a wonderful delight in worshiping God, in thanking God. I would just challenge you that if worship isn't a normal part of your life in its expression, then it's not a part of your life in its appreciation. And we need to cultivate a heart of appreciation. There's one more way that we need to respond to grace, and that's what I've chosen to call imitation. Imitation. <clears throat> thought about this week that one of the ways we could define the Christian life, if we wanted to just boil it all down, we could say the Christian life is to imitate God. Now, we, don't get me wrong, and if you're new here especially, please understand, I don't think we're divine. I don't think we create things or, or any of those kind of uh, oddball ideas. But how we can imitate God is in His character. We can be like Christ in his character. And God asks us to imitate him. There are some specific encouragements. Let me just look at this one. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. He says, I want you to imitate me. Therefore, and there he just says it, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us. I think verse 1 there, the, the, the imitator, is, is a broad statement, but certainly in the context he narrows it down to some relational issues. But he says, imitate me. Who do you imitate? Uh, you know, when you learn a trade, there are times when the, the, the master craftsman may say, now look, Put this bead of solder or welding down just like this. See this? Do it just like this. And if you're smart, you imitate the guy or the gal because your goal is to pass the test and get a job. He says, do it just like this. Or the, or, or, or the electrician or, 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 the, or the carpenter who says, look, there's three ways to do this. I'm going to show you the best way. Okay? Because he's been doing it for umpteen years. Here it is, just like this, you know. When I was a teenager, we built a church building 
the church that I attended, and they hired one carpenter, and all the rest of us were volunteers. And I went out there every afternoon. This was an old Norwegian guy with an accent who had been a skiing sharpshooter in the Norwegian army, you know, and, and he, he, just, he was determined to turn me into a man, you know. And, and he said, now, here's how you swing the hammer. He put, put the hammer in there. He says, let the hammer do the work. And he showed me how to do it. And I, I imitated, I tried to imitate that. He said, do the, you know, he showed me how to do it. Who are you imitating? There are young people, many young people in society who want to imitate athletes. So they say, I've got to have the shoes that this guy wears because, boy, those, that's him. That's, I want to be like that. And they imitate. Do you know who you imitate? You imitate the people you respect. You imitate the people you respect. Do you respect the one who gave you eternal life? Do you respect the one who laid down his life for you? Do you respect the one who daily cares for you? If you do, if you really respect him, you will imitate his generous life. Look at the Apostle Paul's... uh, he, you know, he wasn't trying to teach this truth. He was just talking to the Thessalonians about his life. But he lives this out, this generous giving of himself. We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the truth of God or the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. The apostle Paul knew the generosity of God. I mean, think about it just in Paul's life. Here he is walking down the road one day. His goal is to persecute the church of Christ, the body of Christ. And we don't often think about all of us Christians as being organically connected to Christ. He's the head, we're the body. If you persecute us, you persecute him. And the Apostle Paul is walking down the road getting ready to persecute Christians. And what does God do? He reaches down and says, Paul, you're messed up. I want to turn you around, and I want to save your soul and bless your life and use you greatly. That is generous giving. That's generous living. And the Apostle Paul, he said, man, I am going to do all that I can. Here at the end of his life, he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. The Apostle Paul just poured out his life. When I was a child in my parents' home, they would give me $10 or maybe 12 to go Christmas shopping. Now, before you think they were cheap, that was a long time ago. And those dollars would have expanded probably to 40 or $50 today. And they said, go buy some Christmas presents. I had to buy for my sister, my mother, my father, my mom's dad and mom. My, my dad's folks, his whole family lives in Georgia, and we didn't have much connection with them. So I got to buy 
six presents with my 10 or 12 bucks. And I would search around downtown Everett all day long. Go to the five and dime store and go to the pennies and go here and go there. Because I had a goal. And my goal was to have something left over for me. (laughs) That is not... That is not generous living. That is not gracious giving. That's selfish living. God calls us to imitate His generosity of giving beyond imagination. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help some people understand your truth today. Some people who maybe never quite understood the concept of grace and how you have given us salvation and how you want us to believe and not try to earn our place in heaven. Father, help those people especially to grasp your message today. And then for those of us who have believed, help us. It is so hard to be selfless and so easy to be selfish. Help us to be imitators of you in your generosity. I pray in Christ's name, amen.